Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by our friends over at Paleo Valley, and one of their products that I use on a regular basis is their apple cider vinegar complex, and I use it to help support my energy, my blood sugar, and to promote good digestion. You guys have heard me talk about the importance of stomach acid in the past, Stomach acid helps us prevent against pathogens. So when we eat food, pathogens come in like parasites and bad bacteria. Good stomach acid helps kill those things. It also helps us break down protein and absorb minerals and different nutrients. Well, apple cider vinegar is one of the best things you can be using to help promote the right amount of stomach acid to be produced. And that's why I take this with meals. On top of that, the apple cider vinegar, really it's really good for blood sugar stability. See, when you have blood sugar imbalances, that can make you crash in the afternoon and cause your body to hold on to fat, especially belly fat, which makes you feel hungrier more often. You have cravings. Well, good news. You can actually take apple cider vinegar. Research has shown that it helps reduce the glycemic load and improve your insulin sensitivity and that is really key for all day energy. On top of that, it helps with weight loss by lowering your fasting blood glucose, by increasing your metabolism, improving your muscle performance so you can crush your workouts, regulating your appetite so you feel like you're in control and you're not just driven by your hunger and cravings. It also decreases insulin and that's key because insulin is the fat storage hormone and insulin, more insulin we have in our bloodstream, the more inflammation our body's going to produce. So apple cider vinegar is powerful for getting insulin under control, bringing down inflammation and helping you burn fat for fuel. So what I love about the apple cider vinegar complex is it's a thousand milligrams of apple cider vinegar, about a one and a half tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. And then they also combined it with other warming herbs. They have 300 milligrams of turmeric, one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory herbs, 300 milligrams of ginger and turmeric and ginger really synergize to have a powerful anti-inflammatory effect in the body. They're also great for the digestion, for gut health, for stomach acid production. There's also 150 milligrams of cinnamon in here. We know cinnamon is one of the best things for blood sugar support and 50 milligrams of lemon. And lemon really is good for stomach acid production. Bile flow helps stimulate production of bile, pancreatic enzymes. So we can really digest our food optimally. And Paleo Valley, all their ingredients are all, they're all organic. So no toxins in there. And it is really pure and it works, guys. So definitely check this out. You can go to paleovalley.com, use the coupon code JOCKERS at checkout to save 15%. I know you guys will love this product. Well, welcome back to the podcast. I have got an amazing episode today for you guys. I've got Dr. Dale Bredesen. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote The End of Alzheimer's, 
and the End of Alzheimer's program. And he also has a great book. It's called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, where it's case studies and people kind of sharing their stories of how they've had remarkable recoveries from Alzheimer's. And he is the developer of the Recode Protocol, which is the only clinically proven protocol to reverse cognitive decline in early phase Alzheimer's. Just really a, a privilege and an honor to be able to interview him. He is a wealth of knowledge. You guys are going to love this podcast. We talk all about the Recode Protocol and we talk about some of the myths behind Alzheimer's disease, and we talk about natural things you can do to prevent it, and also things that he's seen be really at the core, the foundation for helping to improve cognitive decline at any age and any stage. And so this is a really, really powerful interview, and you can find Dr. Dale Bredesen at apollohealthco.com. And also, if you check out the show notes, I'll have links to all of his books. Of course, you can find them on Amazon or you know any place that you find books. And guys, if you have not subscribed to my channel, my, my podcast, now is the time to do it. That way you never miss one of these important podcasts. And also, leave a five-star review. When you leave a review, that actually helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thank you so much for doing that, guys. And let's go into the show. Well, I've got Dr. Dale Bredesen here. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The End of Alzheimer's and The mm -hmm. End of Alzheimer's program new book that he just recently came out with. And uh, these are amazing books. If you're looking to improve your brain, you definitely have to get these books. Um, I'm currently reading The End of Alzheimer's Program. Fantastic book. And Dr. Bredesen is also the developer of the Recode Protocol, which is the first protocol to enhance cognition and reverse decline at any age. So Dr. Bredesen, really excited to have you here. Excited for this conversation. Thanks so much, Dr. Jocks. Great to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, let's start with what patient results you've seen in your years uh, studying the Recode Protocol. Yeah, great point. So, of course, when we started, uh, we we actually started this with a, a request for a clinical trial and got turned down by multiple IRBs because, of course, the standard of care is you do one thing, you give one drug or one, uh, you know, one instrumentation, whatever you're going to do. And what we were arguing from our 30 years in the adventure research was that if you look at the signaling that underlies the cognitive decline, that's ultimately Alzheimer's disease then what you see is that this is really at its heart a network insufficiency. There's a whole set of things that drive this neuroplasticity network, and it includes things like uh, specific pathogens and ongoing inflammation and toxicity and insulin resistance and uh, atrophic loss of various uh, growth factors and hormones and nutrients, all these things. So to make this system work, you've got to do all these things. And so we actually just published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, so peer-reviewed publication on a trial where 84% of the people actually improved their cognition. Uh, so we're very excited wow. about that. That hasn't been seen before, as you know. Um, the typical drugs don't improve the cognition. They don't, they don't even stabilize, but what they do at their best is slightly slow the decline. So we've seen this again and again, hundreds and hundreds of people. We actually published 100 examples uh, back in 2018. We published the very first examples back in 2014. And we've had people go from MOCA scores, which go from zero to 30, go from MOCA scores of 18, which is significant Alzheimer's, to a perfect 30. 
Um, now that doesn't happen in everybody. And we're trying to understand what are the critical variables here. Uh, but we do see repeatedly people get better and most importantly, stay better. We've had people now on this program for 10 years who have continued to have their cognitive improvements. Well, that's amazing. I mean, that gives us so much hope. 84% improvement. That's absolutely remarkable. And, you know, we know that Alzheimer's is really growing. It's rapidly growing. I mean, what do the statistics look like? I think it's something like, I mean, it's growing so fast. I heard some sort of statistic where it's going to be like 30% of Americans by the year 2050 or something like that. Yeah, you know, and I should mention also, we also saw MRI improvements. So yeah. improvements across the board. But you bring up a really good point because people often forget in the middle of a pandemic that, yes, the pandemic has killed over a million Americans. Uh, if, if the current statistics hold, the currently living Americans, 45 million of us will die of Alzheimer's wow. disease. It has become, as Dr. Christine Yaffe from UCSF has shown, the third leading cause of death, although it's typically quoted as the sixth or seventh leading cause of death. She looked at serial autopsies and showed that it's actually the third leading cause of death. And by the way, it is number two in the UK. And for women in the UK, it is the number one cause of death. So it is incredibly common. It really dwarfs the COVID-19 epidemic, unfortunately. Uh, and of course, it's just slower than a typical uh, COVID case. So we, if we don't do something about this, if we don't get better with prevention and reversal of symptoms, then we're going to have a huge number of people continue to die. And one of the important points here, you mentioned that on the rise, it is especially on the rise in young people, uh, in the uh, people who are in their 50s. When I was training in neurology, which is way back in the 1980s, we never saw people in their 50s who had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. You just didn't see it. It was a, it was a disease of your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We now know that it starts, the pathophysiology starts about 20 years before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. But in addition to that, we are seeing one of the most common presentations is people in their 50s, often in their early 50s, who come in with Alzheimer's disease. And that's been pointed out by the epidemiologists. That group is especially on the rise. Yeah, so many more people are getting Alzheimer's. And so what are some of the early symptoms that people might be experiencing? I mean, even in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, leading up to obviously, you know, cognitive decline and then eventually Alzheimer's. This is a great point. And you know, uh, it's unfortunate. We're, we're Because there has been nothing to do about it, People keep reassuring you and saying, it's probably not Alzheimer's, it's probably not Alzheimer's, which is the opposite. Everything in this field has been backward. Assume that it's not. Don't do, you know, do small data sets. Uh, give a drug instead of looking at all the different things. So this has really been a pretty backward field for a while, unfortunately. So you're right. What happens is we begin to get these changes and people will tell, oh, you know, it's just, you're just getting a little older. Um, and unfortunately, with, as you know, many 20-somethings are already uh, insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. They've already got ongoing uh, inflammation, whether it's from you know, oral uh, microbiome or from leaky gut. And this is so common now. These are setups for down the road what is going to become Alzheimer's. And I should mention, as an aside, the big problem here is 
Alzheimer's occurs in four stages. And the problem is that we physicians focus on the last stage when we should be focusing on the first stage. Yeah. So stage one, you have a period uh, for several years where you are asymptomatic. You have no symptoms, but you can already show changes in PET scans and spinal fluid. Now we're getting better blood tests. So people will be able to check this even in their 20s and 30s when these are things are just beginning to change. Second stage is called SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. And the epidemiologists have shown that lasts about 10 years. You know that there's something wrong, but you're still able to test in the normal range on your cognitive testing. And so that's really when you want to jump in. And we see virtually 100% of the people who have SCI, we can return to complete normalcy. They do very, very well. But again, you don't go in at that time. The third stage is called MCI. We hear about this a lot, mild cognitive impairment. Very unfortunate term because it's just like telling someone, don't worry, you only have mildly metastatic cancer. Mm. That's really what this is. This is a relatively late stage. And the, by the definition of that is now you're scoring imperfectly on your cognitive tests suboptimally, but you are now continuing to have your activities of daily living. You've preserved those. Then the fourth and final stage is what we call Alzheimer's disease, where there's now dementia. And now those people have impacted their activities of daily living. And so that's the that's when most people will then seek out a med, you know, seek out medical care. I just had an example just a couple of weeks ago, a guy who's a physician himself, who really was in that fourth stage already, went into his doctor and his doctor said, Oh yeah, don't worry. This is just normal aging. This is what to expect. Oh my gosh, this is so misguided. This guy had already gone through stage one, two, and three and was already into the fourth stage. And by the way, turned out to have normal pressure hydrocephalus as well as Alzheimer's disease, which had never been hmm. uh, never been checked and recognized. So it is critical, as people know, it, you know, as you and I know, you start knowing that something is not right with your brain, you need to get evaluated because there are a lot of things you can do to optimize it. And we're seeing it now with brain fog in COVID-19. So many people come away with brain fog. So, so the, this is the, the basically the way you see this. And the, as you mentioned, the presentation, it comes in two groups. About two thirds of people will have am, an am, amnestic presentation. They can't learn new information. They remember who their first, they may remember who their first grade teacher was, but they don't remember what they had for dinner last night. They don't remember where they put their keys, those sorts of things. About one third of people will present with a non-amnestic presentation. And those are problems with organizing, so executive dysfunction, problems with, uh, with recognition of faces, prosopagnosia, problem with recognition of objects, problems with word finding, so-called primary progressive aphasia, um, and, and then uh, various other things that are like, for example, dyscalculia, things that are more parietal lobe symptoms instead of the amnestic presentation, which is more of a temporal lobe presentation. And those ones that have the non-amnestic presentations are at risk for, for having a toxin-associated cognitive decline. So we want to look especially carefully at the non-amnestics for toxin association. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know like some early symptoms, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, if you're dealing with brain fog, for yep. common forgetfulness, you can't remember where your keys are, your phone, this is happening commonly 
then yep. that could be symptoms. Sleep disorders are really big. Uh, if you're not yep. sleeping through the night effectively, anxiety, depression, all of those things, can't. they're all signs that your brain is inflamed. And exactly. uh, obviously, we've got to get to the root cause there. Otherwise, over time, that inflammation is just going to burn down the brain. And then eventually, the body's going to do what it needs to do to try to repair, which is put in these amyloid plaques. Right. And, uh, you know, that's by, you know, by that time, like you said, it's like 20, 30 year process. That's when you finally get mild cognitive decline and then eventually uh, full-blown Alzheimer's. And I know in your book, you talk about six different types of Alzheimer's or six different mechanisms behind Alzheimer's. I found this very interesting. Can you go into that in more detail? Absolutely. You know, so the classical approach is you just look at a very small data set and you say, you've got Alzheimer's, nothing I can do. You're going to die. But here, take this pill. What we found in, in our research is if you now start looking at larger data sets, so you're not, you know, very much of a functional medicine or a precision medicine or an integrative medicine sort of approach, you find that many of these people have leaky gut, have sleep apnea, have changes in their oral microbiome, on and on and on. So as we did this, we found out, aha, people can get to that same biochemistry, the synaptic loss and the poor signaling that we characterize as Alzheimer's disease. But they can get there, as you said, from different pathways. So there is what we call type one or inflammatory Alzheimer's. And these people are typically presenting in their 60s with Alzheimer's and they've got high HSCRP and things like that. They may have a high TNF alpha or IL-1 beta or things like that. It's an inflammatory process. And by the way, the amyloid that you mentioned is part of the innate immune system. Yeah. So just as with COVID-19, you have a mismatch between the inf the inflammatory part, the innate part of the immune system and the adaptive system, which hasn't cleared the pathogen. So just as in COVID-19, you die of cytokine storm, in Alzheimer's, you're dying of cytokine drizzle. It's slowly over years. Type two is atrophic, very different. These people don't have a lot of inflammation, but they have reduced growth factors like BDNF and NGF. They have reduced hormones. They have reduced nutrients, things like vitamin D. And people with low vitamin D are unquestionably at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. That's been published multiple times. Then there's a type 1.5. We named it that because it has both inflammation and an atrophic feature, and that is glycotoxicity. You get the insulin resistance, so now your insulin signaling is reduced, and that gives you some type two, but you also get the inflammation of things like of non-enzymatically glycated proteins. We measure it, of course, as hemoglobin A1C, but of course, hundreds and hundreds of proteins are glycated, and they are inflammatory. So that's type 1.5. Then type three is, is toxic, and that can be uh, inorganics, things like air pollution, mercury, things like that. That can be organics, things like glyphosate, toluene, benzene, formaldehyde, or it can be uh, biotoxins, things like trichothecenes or ochratoxin A. All of those can contribute to what ultimately becomes Alzheimer's disease. Type 4 is vascular, and it's very clear that there's an important relationship between vessels and Alzheimer's, which again comes back to COVID-19, where there's this showing, of course, of endothelial cells that are attacked and have complement on them and, and immune complexes. It's, it's really uh, unfortunate. And then uh, the final type, type five, um, which is traumatic. So people are at risk who've had uh, early head trauma that increases your risk, not only for CTE, uh, the uh, traumatic encephalopathy, uh, but also for Alzheimer's disease.
And in that traumatic type, would that also include, obviously concussions, that's what we typically think of. How about emotional trauma? Where does that kind of tie in? Can that just trigger any one of those pathways? You know, this is such a good point because repeatedly, essentially this, you know, amygdala damage, yeah. essentially th this whole idea of stress and threat, uh, uh, as Dr. Clausen actually has pointed out repeatedly, stress and threat, so important for cognitive decline. And part of healing, part of getting better is not just addressing all the chemistry of this, but also addressing the healing. You know, as someone who's a lab scientist for many, many years, as well as neurologist, I never believed in this stuff about, oh, you know, it's important to breathe and it's important to do meditation and important all this. But I can't ignore the data. The data are very clear. This is a very important cause. And in fact, people who are under a lot of stress have an increased risk for cognitive decline. And as you mentioned earlier, things like insomnia and things like anxiety, all these things are essentially forms of stress. Things aren't quite right. Your system knows it. You can't sleep or you can't function well. You have you know, re repeated anxiety, things like this. So these are all telling us something is not quite right. We've got to get the system back into optimal function. I just want to interrupt this podcast and take a moment and tell you about the importance of electrolytes. We all need electrolytes in order to produce energy, in order for our nervous system to function well on a daily basis. And most people are just not getting enough electrolytes, especially when they start on a low carb ketogenic style diet or if they're doing intermittent fasting. And this is because when you go on a low carb diet or if you're practicing fasting, you get a big drop in insulin. And insulin's job is to actually cause you to retain sodium and other electrolytes. And so you actually start urinating them out. So when you're on a low carb diet, you're burning fat for fuel, but you need more electrolytes. In fact, there's a condition called the keto flu. And this is where people feel really bad when they start on a low carb keto style diet or if they start doing intermittent fasting and they don't have the electrolytes to support them. This is why I'm a huge fan of Element. It's L-M-N-T, that's the name of the company. And they contain a science-backed electrolyte ratio. That means 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, none of that stuff. You know, the average sports drink has 260 milligrams of sodium. That's not enough. 65 milligrams of potassium. That's a really low amount. They don't have magnesium. And the average sports drink has 29 grams of sugar. That's gonna spike your blood sugar and your insulin levels. Element, again, has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No sugar. It's flavored with stevia. And right now, as a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you. You can get a free sample pack of seven different packets of each flavor. They have great flavors, citrus, raspberry, watermelon, orange. Again, all flavored with stevia, all natural sweetener. It's not going to impact your blood sugar. They also have an unflavored. So if you're not into that or if you don't do well with stevia, you get the unflavored as well. But you can get the sample pack now for free and you only cover the cost of shipping, which is roughly $5. Just go to the site, drink element so drink lmnt.com forward slash dr jockers again that's drink lmnt.com forward slash dr jockers to get your free sample pack of element 
Again, Element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Guys, try this out. You're gonna see a big jump in your energy and your performance. I mean, if you're a high-level athlete, you need electrolytes, try this out today. Yeah, and let's talk about genetics. I know there's the APOE4, uh, which is yeah. that subtype is associated with a higher risk for developing Alzheimer's. Where do the different, I mean, APOE is, I think, the the, the main gene that's looked at. Obviously, there's probably several others, um, but how does that play into these different uh, Alzheimer's types or these different yeah, mechanisms? That's a- that's a really good question. And, and so you have to divide, basically divide uh, Alzheimer's up into two pieces. There is just a tiny fraction, it's less than 5%, that is truly full-on genetic. And it's just three genes, APP, presenilin-1, presenilin-2, also called PS1, PS2. Those are the ones where everybody who has the gene gets the disease. Now, we're actually working with a few people who have those, and we're very hopeful that what we've done for the rest of the people, the sporadic side, which has worked very well, will work for these as well if you simply start earlier. But it's going to take us time to know that. But for 95-plus percent of us, it is a sporadic illness where the genetics will increase your risk or decrease your risk, but they aren't, it it doesn't have a 100% penetrance. So in this case, um, as you mentioned, APOE is the most common genetic risk factor, and it's specifically the E4, the Epsilon 4 allele of APOE, which gives you increased risk. So if you have no copies of APOE4, which is about three quarters of us. For example, I check myself, I'm an APOE33, which is the most common. That's what I am as well. Yeah, and your lifetime risk is about 9%. Now, of course, if you do the right things, you can drop that much lower. If you have a single copy, and that is 75 million Americans, most of whom don't know it, your risk is now 30% for your lifetime. So everybody should get this checked out and get on active prevention. Because this increased risk, you can drop it down to very, very low by doing the right things. Get yourself a cognoscopy. Everyone knows to get a colonoscopy when you turn 50. Please get a cognoscopy if you're over 40 and see where you stand so that you can make sure you do well for many years to come. And then finally, if you have two copies, and that's 7 million Americans, again, vast majority don't know it, you're over 50%, somewhere in the 70 to 90% category. So most likely you will develop Alzheimer's unless you get on active prevention. So we deal with a lot of people who are 4-4s who know they're at risk. Um, And so, but again, this is not a fate. This is just a risk factor. And there are about 30 other genes that are at risk. And there have been dozens more of that identified recently as well. So there are you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of genes that have some risk. But by far, the most common one is APOE4. Yeah, and some of the characteristics of Alzheimer's, we see the neurofibrillary tangles uh, right. in, the, in the neurons. We also see the amyloid plaque that's kind of built up in the brain. And what is it about an APOE4? What, you know, there, I, 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 obviously you and I both, both are into functional medicine. So we look at a lot of these genes and we think, okay, this provided some level of survival advantage. There must've been some advantage that our ancestors had when they had this, right? And so what is it about an APOE4 that 
predisposes them more to, to have a higher rate of Alzheimer's? And is there any benefit to having um, that particular allele? Yeah, there actually there is some benefit, especially if you live in a third world country. But, you know, just to step back for one moment, this is a really important point, because if you look at this the old fashioned way, which is unfortunately what's going on in places around the country, they go in and they say, well, something happened, your protein misfolded, we don't know why it is. It made some tau be phosphorylated. We don't know why it is. You've got an aggregated proteins. We can remove it with an antibody, and that actually doesn't make you better. Um, we're just confused. What 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 the heck is this all about? It, because they're not looking at this physiologically. If you look at this through the lens of precision medicine and go back to basic mechanisms, your brain is not trying to kill you. Your brain is trying to help you. So what's happened is you get exposed to these various insults. You have poor oral microbiome. And by the way, P. gingivalis and others from the oral microbiome are found in the brains of patients wow. with Alzheimer's. So as I mentioned earlier, A-beta, the amyloid beta peptide, is part of the innate immune system, which now makes perfect sense. You start with insults. You've got inflammation. You've got these various pathogens. They get into your brain. Herpes simplex gets into your brain, as we know. Various spirochetes get into your brain, various tick-borne illnesses, these things. It's surprising how the access is much more than was ever realized before. Now, your brain responds and says, I'm being attacked. You start with an inflammatory response, which includes amyloid. And as professors Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi from Harvard showed a number of years ago, this is an antimicrobial peptide. So you're going now and you're covering this stuff and killing it with the amyloid. So you start seeing these plaques. It's not because the amyloid's there to hurt you. It's actually trying to help you. Now, the thing is, it is a very much like what happened to our country with the pandemic. We were all told in early 2020, you know, you're going to socially distance, you're going to shelter in place, don't go to your job, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we went into a recession. This is just what your brain does. It puts down the amyloid and says, we got to pull back. We, we have got to go from a mode of growth and maintenance to a mode of protection and downsizing. And so, in fact, the phosphotau, you mentioned the the uh, the the uh, tangles earlier. And the reason you have those tangles is because the amyloid now, as it's saying, okay, pull back, pull back, we're gonna, we're gonna now, essentially it is a scorched earth retreat. We're gonna kill all this stuff and we're gonna have to live with a slightly smaller brain. It signals the APP, which is the parent of the amyloid, signals to tau to say phosphorylate. And what phospho, what does when you phosphorylate tau is, Tau is a stabilizer for microtubules. The phosphorylation pulls it off the microtubules and allows them to collapse rapidly. So you're now signaling to your brain, pull back on those neurites, which is exactly what you see. So you lose synapses. Now, what we found is that everybody who has cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease is on the synaptoclastic side instead of the synaptoblastic side by analogy with osteoporosis. So all we are doing is identifying all the insults. We're getting rid of the synaptoclastic signaling. We're enhancing the synaptoblastic signaling and people start getting better again. And as people have seen, they continue to get better and better. Yeah, so and that's so important because, right. yeah. you know, really when we look at the health of the brain, 
healthy yeah. synapses may be more important than the overall, I guess you could say, volume of neurons. The amount of healthy synapses or little gaps between the neurons really provides um, strength and a, kind of a, a form of cognitive uh, reserve, right? You know, ability to adapt to stress, you yeah. know, and 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 function well, even as we even as we get older. And no question, there have been a number of studies showing that people with high cognitive reserve are more res resistant to getting Alzheimer's yeah. disease. So, you, you know, there is a threshold there. And as long as you can keep things going, and this is the reason for, for all of us to continue to exercise, continue to get evaluated and make sure we don't have these various insults that are causing us to lose these synapses. And again, there is just so much that can be done. This this old idea that there's nothing that prevents, reverses, or delays Alzheimer's is turned out to be so wrong. There is a tremendous amount. The armamentarium is actually huge, both for prevention and for reversal. The longer you wait, the tougher it is. Yeah, so amyloid, really the way we need to think about that is more like in functional medicine, the way we look at cholesterol. You know, yes. cholesterol, when we think about cardiovascular disease, cholesterol had been blamed as the root cause and they targeted drugs with statin medications to try to lower it, but it's not the root cause. It's just what shows up when we have inflammation damaging the arterial beds because it's like a bus bringing um, fat-soluble nutrients, phospholipids to help repair. So it's kind of the same thing with the amyloid where it's actually part of the immune system's response to try to keep infections under control. So we can't blame it. It's what the body naturally needs to do to try to protect itself. What we got to do is obviously go upstream and look at the root cause factors there um, and why it's being laid down. This is an excellent analogy because what happened with these two things is almost identical. So what happens, we know that if you have a genetic cause of hypercholesterolemia, even though cholesterol is not the cause for most of us, in that case, the genetic cause leads you to think, aha, it's the cholesterol that caused the problem. The same thing happened when you have a mutation that in APP that gives you more amyloid you do get Alzheimer's. So all the drug companies jumped on this, let's get rid of the cholesterol, let's get rid of the amyloid, but it didn't work. These Now, to be fair, yes, in someone with familial hypercholesterolemia, it does help to lower that, but it, but in Alzheimer's, it hasn't. So it, they didn't look upstream to say, why did you make the cholesterol? Why did you make the amyloid? Because that's the key to understanding the disease. Yeah, for sure. And and before you had said the APOE4 benefits us if we're living in a third world country. Yes. And that's because it's part of the immune system's response to potential pathogens. Is that correct? So APOE4 turns out to be an absolutely fascinating allele. Yeah. And here's why. When we descended, we hominids descended from the simians five to seven million years ago, uh, the chimps, for example, do not have uh, APOE human, four, three, or two. Um, they have APOE chimp. And there is, so if you look at the mutations that were associated with the appearance of hominids, as you know, it's a relatively small number. We aren't, the DNA is not that much different. And so, as and I told my wife, who's an integrative physician who, who loves your work, uh, I told her, you know, my DNA overall is more similar to a 
male chimp DNA than it is to yours. And she said, well, duh. Yeah, you guys both like the Three Stooges. You both like ESPN, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So what happened was there's a small number of changes. And ApoE4 was the primordial one. So we were all, for 96% of hominid evolution, we were all ApoE4-4. It's just been in the last 200,000 years that ApoE3 has appeared, and then in the last 80,000 years. Now, what we found in the lab and published this several years ago, ApoE has something really interesting. It actually enters the cell, binds to several receptors, enters the cell, and then it goes into the nucleus and interacts with DNA and impacts 1,700 different gene promoters. And if you look at those, they are things that, for example, decrease, they're they causing inflammation to go down. And what's happening is ApoE4 prevents that. So it is a pro-inflammatory gene that allowed us to come down out of the trees, walk along the savanna, puncture our feet, fight with our brethren, fight with our food, and, and eat raw meat, by the way, because meat filled with pathogens that hasn't been cooked, you do better if you're ApoE4. Then more recently, and we don't know why this occurred. Was it because of fire, the ability to cook things? What We don't know what it was, but again, ApoE3 and 2 appeared. They are less pro-inflammatory. So yes, if you're living in a third world country, you live longer, healthier with ApoE4. But if you're not, you actually live longer and healthier with ApoE3 and 2. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I know in your book, you are obviously a huge advocate of good, clean nutrition. You talk a lot about ketosis yeah. which you know my 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 audience is is aware of and we know that how important ketosis is and it actually turns our body's ability to burn fat for fuel and beta hydroxybutyrate which is kind of the main ketone body that we test when we're looking at your blood ketones has also right. been associated with turning down inflammation in the brain can you talk more about that it's a great point. So, you know, I did not train as a nutritionist. There was only one. When I was at yeah. medical school, there was only one course, which I took. Was It was optional. And we learned virtually nothing about, you know, real nutrition. And now there's just so much more. And it's really beautiful to see how the neurochemistry fits in with the nutrition. So if you were to sit down and design at your computer the perfect biochemistry for the brain, then the diet part would be a plant rich, you've got it, you've got to have the phytonutrients, you know, you've got to have so many things. Polyphenols alone have been shown to improve cognition. So just on and on and on, so many things. So it's a plant rich, mildly ketogenic diet. You want to be in that kind of one to four millimolar beta hydroxybutyrate, or if you prefer looking at, you know, looking at a breathalyzer, and then you want to be like 10 to 40 in your in your acetone, your ACEs. Then you want to have high fiber, of course. Fiber is amazing, as we know, and it you know, feeds your microbiome and, and helps you with detox, helps you with better glycemic control, helps you with better lipid control. It's amazing how important it is. Um, you want to obviously optimize your microbiome, heal your gut. Uh, and so, and then you want to have appropriate periods of fasting so that you can help to get into ketosis. 12 to 14 hours if you're ApoE4 negative, 14 to 16 hours if you're ApoE4 positive. So if you combine all these things, you have the right nutrients now, you have a better gut health, you have all these wonderful uh, you know, prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics that can be so helpful. So you can really see how this benefits brain chemistry. Yeah, and this is really what we talk about on the show all the time. And you, you've actually you've you've 
uh, branded your your keto program. It's Keto Flex twelve three, I believe, right? And that's yeah. We just, and again, we just wanted to go for best brain function. Um, people yeah. jumped on. We first said, well, you know, ketosis helps the brain. They said, great, you know, give me the bacon, give me the ham, all that stuff. And like, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. This is a plant rich mild yeah. ketogenic diet yeah you want to have some pastured chicken or some some uh, grass-fed beef you know have at it uh you want to have some uh, wild caught uh, a smash fish great uh, have it uh but don't get the high mercury not good for your mm -hmm. brain so absolutely it fits beautifully with the sort of diet that you're talking about yeah yeah definitely getting high quality protein grass-fed beef wild caught fish healthy fats i know you're a big fan of extra virgin high polyphenol extra virgin olive oil just like i am one of the best things you can do for your brain um, avocados um, unless you're apoe4 coconut oil which is really good uh, apoe4s we tend to go with more focusing more on the monounsaturated fats. I know that you advocate that as well, like poly high polyphenol, extra virgin olive oil, and then lots of colors, right? Lots of colorful vegetables, Absolutely. which have those polyphenols and phytonutrients that support your gut microbiome. And your gut microbiome will actually create butyric acid, which you know is actually a ketone and reduces inflammation yep. in the brain and throughout the body when it consumes those. And uh, so, yeah, this is this is what we teach here as well. So it goes hand in hand with what you're doing. Um, and I think that's really got to be the foundation. I also like how you break down the fasting based on if you're APOE4 or not. And you have a, a, a tighter uh, um, or a more compressed eating window for somebody that's APOE4. And that's because they have higher levels of inflammation. Is that correct? It's partly for the inflammation, as you said, yeah. but it's also because they are better fat absorbers. It's very interesting. Yeah. Again, APOE4 is something that gives you advantages when you come down out of the trees in Africa five to seven million years ago. You're able to go longer without finding food. Um, you're able to eat a, a raw meat. You're able to get in, you know, step on something, puncture your foot and get inflamed, and you're now able to quell that inflammation better. But I should mention there's an important paradox here with Alzheimer's. As I mentioned earlier, this is a network insufficiency. So you do not get enough uh, energy to your brain, and that can be from blood flow problems, oxygenation, mitochondrial function, ketone levels. So as Professor Stephen Kinane from Canada has shown, you can bridge that gap, not completely, but largely just with some exogenous ketones. Mm. So on the one hand, we're trying to get people to be insulin sensitive, which often means doing some periods of fasting, but you have to be very careful because you're taking an insufficiency and temporarily making it more insufficient. And therefore, to get that combination, which is metabolic flexibility, ability to deal with glucose, but also ability to have ketones, which most people lose when they're, when they're developing Alzheimer's disease. So we just typically start with giving some exogenous ketones, ketone salts or esters. You mentioned coconut oil is fine, but if you're APOE4 negative or if your LDL particle number is over 1200, you probably want to stay away from, uh, from the coconut oil. Yeah, and that's really interesting with the exogenous ketones. I know there's a two thousand, I believe it's two thousand seven pilot study where they went into a nursing home and all they did was added MCT oil to one group's food. I'm sure you're familiar with that study, and they showed improvements in their cognitive scoring. Right? Just a little bit of MCT oil, no no changes. And we know that nursing homes, unfortunately, uh, you know, give some of the worst food. N nursing homes and hospitals probably some of the worst foods people can get. And these are people that desperately need uh, the kind of nutrition program like we're talking about here. Exactly.
Yeah. And so just something simple, like adding in some exogenous ketones or MCT oil, especially if you have a family member, it's really a little bit more resistant can actually you can start to see improvement. Sometimes when people start to see improvement, they get more on board uh, to yeah. do other things. And so that can be really, really powerful. Exactly right. And, you know, I had a guy write to me uh, about a year and a half ago, say, you know, you're telling people you, you really want to get in this early. Fine. He said, but, but don't tell people to avoid it late because he said, I have my wife who had a MOCA score of zero in a nursing home. We put her on the protocol and she's done much better. Mm. And yeah, her MOCA score is still low, but uh, she's interacting, she's dressing herself, she's talking to us, she's more engaged. So it can make a difference even in people who are late. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to let you know that if you are a coffee drinker, I have some critical information you need to know. You see, coffee is the number one source of antioxidants people are consuming all around the world. It's rich in chlorogenic and caffeic acid, which are polyphenols that stabilize your blood sugar, support gut health and improve your brain. And they also stimulate autophagy and deep cellular healing. So coffee has many amazing health benefits, but there's a dark side to coffee. It often carries mold, dangerous mycotoxins, and is heavily sprayed with pesticides that lead to chronic disease. It's also acidic, causing stomach issues, and many have to stop drinking coffee as they get older because it irritates their stomach lining. That's why I started drinking Life Boost Coffee. I wanted something that had all the health benefits with none of the mold and chemicals found in regular coffee. Plus, it's a shade-grown coffee, which is naturally a low-acid coffee that doesn't hurt my stomach. And they have hundreds of testimonials of people who couldn't stomach traditional coffee who can now enjoy coffee on a daily basis without any digestive discomfort. They also third-party test for 450-plus toxins, including mycotoxins, molds, heavy metals, pesticides, and even glyphosate, just to make sure it's the cleanest, healthiest cup they can provide to their customers. I also really like these guys because they build schools for their farmers' children near the coffee farms where they harvest their, their coffee beans. And they're corporate sponsors of the Rainforest Trust to prevent deforestation and protect wildlife. They really care about the environment. And because you're listening to my podcast right now, you can get 50% off your first order by going to www.lifeboostdeal.com. That's lifeboostdeal.com. They are, again, shade-grown, low acid, clean and free of toxins, and they taste amazing. Just go to lifeboostdeal.com to get 50% off now. Yeah, I know you have so many great case studies, too, of people that are turning the, this thing around. And uh, it's just Absolutely. really, it's, it's inspiring and it's amazing to see. And I was also interested in your book. You talked about dementogens um, yes. and how they impact the brain. So let's go into those. You know, it's a good point. And, and I did I did put out a book last year called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Seven yeah. people wrote their stories. And dementogens are an important part of this. I was surprised when I trained as a neurologist uh, you know, we talked about uh, very few toxins that affected the brain. It was the usual heavy metals, you know, what happens with mercury, what happens with lead, things like that. But what we didn't know was how many of these things are out there and the fact that we're all exposed. We we think about carcinogens. Of course, Professor Bruce Ames with the Ames test showed us how to test for carcinogens years and years ago. But nobody ever tells you about the dementogens that you're exposed to. 
And whether it's exposure to a moldy home that might have stachybotrys in it or penicillium or aspergillus or ketomium or wallemia and maybe making these various mycotoxins, or whether it's because you're exposed to air pollution, uh, it's more and more evidence now on air pollution and, and its effect uh, on cognition. Uh, or whether it's because you're exposed to various organics. One of the common ones we see coming up now is acrolein that so many people are exposed to, which is basically incomplete combustion. Uh, so people who's, you know, whose cars may not be working well or who are in a lot of traffic, things like that. Again and again and again, that overall exposure to so many toxins, as you know, detoxification is really critical for best health. And people don't realize this because it's stored, it's dealt with for years and years and years. And one of the things that surprised me was people in their early 50s, as you know, they go through the so-called uh, osteoclastic burst for about seven years, typically around the time of menopause, for example, for women or andropause for men. But there's the burst that the women have that the men typically don't have. We're now releasing some of these toxins that they have sequestered in the bone over the years. And we see a spike in presentation for Alzheimer's disease. So toxins, whether inorganic, organic, or biotoxins, play an increasingly recognized role in the cognitive decline of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, for sure. And you see that all the time with people with mold. One of the common symptoms is if they've been exposed to mold and they have uh, mold toxicity, um, you know, one of the common things is forgetfulness, brain fog, yeah. mood disorders, sleep disorders, things like that, that are all kind of these precursors to developing dementia and Alzheimer's. Now, I was also very interested, you, you mentioned how uh, women get this osteoclastic spike, which means this breakdown in bone tissue as their hormones drop during menopause, because yeah. estrogen is so important for kind of maintaining bone mass. And so, you know, they store a lot of these toxins like lead, for example, can be stored in the bone. And so that can be released. And do you believe that that is the reason? Because women, um, a much higher percentage of women are developing Alzheimer's than men. So do you think that's one of the factors? Or are there any other factors there? It's a great point. It's well established. And Maria Shriver has pointed this out a number of times um, that this, that Alzheimer's is unfortunately a woman-centric disease. And so about uh, almost two-thirds of patients, about 65% of patients are women, and about 60% of caregivers are women. Uh, and so, you know, th this is the big question, why is this? And there seem to be multiple aspects at work here. The drop in progesterone reduces your ability to detox, as Chris Shade has pointed out. The drop in estradiol, this kind of relatively sudden drop with estradiol, reduces a synaptoclastic support of your neural network. And so mm. people, as you know, have just treated with estradiol alone with a little success. But again, monotherapies are not the way to go for this, this neural network illness. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, this osteoclastic burst is re-releasing toxins back in uh, to the bloodstream. So for all those reasons and probably additional ones we don't know about as well, women are definitely at increased risk compared to men. Yeah, I had heard also that women, for whatever reason, produce more amyloid. Is that correct? Or have you seen anything about that? Uh, so that again, that that can be related to the drop in hormones. So mm -hmm. what's what's interesting yeah. here is there is this amazing balance. Your amyloid precursor protein, your APP, is a membrane type one membrane receptor 
that literally works like a switch and it is aggregating inputs. So when things are good, it is cleaved at a single site and produces two supportive peptides, one for outside the cell called SAPP-alpha and one for inside the cell called alpha-CTF or C-terminal fragment. These things support making and keeping synapses. When things are bad, and that includes lowering your trophic support, like in uh, estradiol is one of the examples, and you can literally trace the molecular pathways by which this happens. Then what happens is the same APP is cut at three sites, and you get four peptides that support pulling back and protection. So that does give you more amyloid. So if you give someone support for years with estradiol and then drop it, your brain responds by making more amyloid. Wow, yeah, really interesting. And also the oral microbiome, you had mentioned it before, but that's becoming just increasingly uh, more well-known as a root cause factor for heart disease, for different brain disorders, autoimmune conditions, and cancer as well. So let's, uh, let's discuss that. Such a good point. Uh, and, and as you know, uh, there is a whole area of oral systemic health where many dentists as well as physicians are realizing, wait a minute, these aren't two specialties. Being a physician and being a dentist are really both part of the same thing, which is looking how at how oral systemic health works. So whether it's because of, as I mentioned earlier, P. gingivalis or T. denticola or F. nucleotum, you just go right down the list. Your oral microbiome, having the good guys rather than the bad guys, is absolutely critical. And of course, you can add to that things like uh, you know, mercury, if you've got uh, amalgams, it, do you have gingivitis? And the big surprise has been that the neuropathologist can show us in the brain amyloid plaques surrounding oral uh, microbiome players. So this stuff, as you mentioned, it's part of your arterial plaque. It's unfortunately part of inducing cancers. Um, neoplasm formation, and unfortunately, it's also part of dementia. So yes, oral systemic health is really a growing field mm -hmm. and one we all need to understand better. And of course, the separate issue is then people with, with sleep apnea, obstructive yeah. sleep apnea, because their airways aren't poor. They didn't have the appropriate development uh, when they were young, and they are now at increased risk for cognitive decline. And unfortunately, as you know, the statistics are horrible. About 80% of sleep apnea goes undiagnosed and untreated, which is just horrible. And it's an unquestionable contributor to cognitive decline. So yes, oral microbiome is huge. And we recommend that everybody get your oral microbiome checked out. Get You can do it through oral DNA, my periopath, or there are other ways as well. But find out where you stand. If you've got the bad guys more and fewer good guys, of course, there are wonderful uh, oral probiotics now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of things that you can do to help support your oral microbiome. Now, I'm a huge advocate of nasal breathing as well. A lot of people are mouth breathers. Yes. Have you guys yeah. looked at that at all? Obviously, sleep apnea can be associated with chronic mouth breathing. Um, have you guys looked at the impact of breathing patterns and mouth breathers, nose breathers, and what role that plays in brain health? Yeah, great point. And of course, nasal breathing gives you more of the nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. So if you're a mouth breather and you have changed your biome, you get a double whammy on reducing yeah. the nitric oxide, increased risk for, car for uh, car coronary events, uh, increased risk for cognitive decline and vascular events in your brain. So a you know, double whammy there. Now, here's the problem. Some of us 
simply cannot breathe very well from our noses through our noses because we have allergies or because you know whatever yeah. others of us do just fine if you simply close the mouth so i think again it's so important when you're relatively young find out where you stand how is your airway are you a good mouth i mean a good nose breather or are you unfortunately a mouth breather can you change that or are there other issues that have to be dealt with these are all again part of optimizing your cognition and reducing your risk for cognitive decline yeah and you mentioned a good point there too when your mouth breathing actually increases your risk of having a poor oral microbiome as well so if you can get mouth nasal breathing not only you're getting that nitric oxide more direct oxygen up into the brain but also at the same time you're also doing something to help prevent uh poor oral microbiome health exactly. now let's talk about um let's talk about your five favorite uh, herbs or nutrients for brain health. Like if somebody was saying, okay, what, obviously I know you're into, you, you're a function, you do functional medicine. You like to, no. to have more of a targeted approach, but if somebody were to go out and look for herbs or specific nutrients, um, what are the things that you're seeing that most people are deficient in that really move the needle the most for people? This is a great point. And yes, you know, the thing that's amazing, functional medicine has a huge armamentarium. So there are all sorts of things. And you want to kind of, this is, this is where being a good doctor helps. You want to focus. Yeah. And I always liken this sort of protocol to more like surgery. You're learning a surgical mm -hmm. procedure because you've got to do things the right way at the right time in the right order. But if you just look at, okay, what across the board are things that are tend to be good for everyone? I like certain things. One I like is whole coffee fruit extract. Mm. It increases BDNF and it's amazing. The biochemistry of BDNF signaling fits. It's literally intimately intertwined with the biochemistry of Alzheimer's signaling. It is amazing to me. It changes the cleavage of APP itself. So love whole coffee fruit extract. Of course, you can bump your BDNF with exercise as well. Love things like katsu bands and, and uh, EWAT to exercise with oxygen therapy that would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Second thing I really like is resolvents. Uh, so many of us have some chronic inflammation. And yes, it's great to have some omega-3s, which I like very much as well. DHA and, and, um, and EPA, especially uh, Professor Wortman from uh, MIT has spent his career looking at the beautiful benefits of things like citicoline and, and uh uh, and DHA on synapse formation. So resolvins really kind of take you a step further and help to resolve ongoing inflammation, just as Professor Charles Sirhan uh, has discovered in his laboratory. Um, and then the third thing I like um, is to uh, is to is a, to increase your choline. Most of us are low in choline. You should get about 550. Uh, grams per day of choline. Most of us don't get that, uh, and so uh, uh, and so we we want to have uh, you know so we want to have enough choline. And most of us again are a little on the low side. We get 300 or 400 or something like that. Uh, and so um, and I should say 550 milligrams. And the best food sources there of choline are going to be pasture raised eggs, a really great source. Yes. Uh, organ meats, right, are, are also a very good source. Most people are not consuming organ meats. And a lot of people have egg sensitivities, right? Especially if they have autoimmune disease, there's some yeah. people out there that just can't tolerate eggs, but they're part of a great part of a diet, but it can be hard if you're not eating eggs regularly or organ meats to get enough choline. So supplementation can be really beneficial there. It's a good point, and you can do this with citicoline. Again, Dr. Yeah. Wortman uh, suggested that years ago. You can do it with alpha-GPC. 
uh, things like that. So I would say that's kind of number three would be choline related things. Um, number four would be things that help to heal your gut. So many people have poor gut status. So things like uh, uh, you know, things like any sort of bone broth and things like that, I, I really tend to like. And there are you know, other things that, again, you can take as supplementation that are gut healing. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then other areas, I would say many people are low in magnesium. So yeah. uh, for many people, having a magnesium three and eight, which is more for brain penetration, and then a, a, a magnesium uh, glycinate, uh, which is more for you know gut support, uh, can be very very helpful. So I would say those are some of my top five that I that I can think can be very helpful for so many people uh, in their quest for better uh, you know for for better cognition. And I would maybe add as a as a bonus uh, nitric oxide. So things like neo forty or arginine or the beetroot juice. These are all good ways to make sure. You mentioned earlier the nose breathing, which is also yeah. very helpful uh, for nitric oxide as well. Yeah, so good. And magnesium, I'm a huge advocate of that. I find that most people, especially anybody that has any sort of neurological type issue, we talked about sleeping, anxiety, depression, uh, brain fog, memory issues. Yes. Magnesium is probably the one that they feel the most for, from, from my experience. When they start yeah. taking a good quality, like a magnesium L3 and 8, it's like they feel it. They, they notice it right away. And, yeah. uh, you know, they come back to that. They stay, they stay compliant with the magnesium because they feel Absolutely. it. Yep. Now let's just finish up here. I mean, you've got the recode protocol and training. In fact, um, you have a program set up for practitioners all over the world. Um, you also have a lot of great information for lay people as well. I know Melissa, my health coach, uh, that many of the listeners know, um, she comes on and does Q and A's with me. She's actually just completed your product, your, your program and said it was outstanding. She learned so much and I uh, just really loved how you guys laid it out and, and, and created it. So if there's practitioners out there, how can they find out more about this? Yeah, you can go on, uh, or mycognoscopy.com or apollohealthco.com. Any of those. Um, you can also follow on on Facebook, uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Uh, so there's there's a many 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 ways, and of course I published a few books on this, and you can also yeah. take a look at our published papers. Um, so you know it's good to be skeptical. Look at our data, um, and these are also you know, also publicly available. Uh, and so check out the the published data we have that show people actually getting better. Yeah, absolutely powerful. And guys, if you're a practitioner or a layperson. Definitely get his new book, The End of Alzheimer's Program. Amazing book, very easy to read. If you like my website with a lot of good graphics, like we were talking about, he's got some great graphics, graphs, different things like that in this book. It's really well laid out, very easy to read. And it will be the book, if you're, if you're out there, if you're interested in brain health, it will be the book of the year for you and you'll want to refer it. You'll probably buy several so you can give it out to, to friends and family uh, coming up this holiday. So, uh, Dr. Bredesen, thanks again so much for your time. Any last words of inspiration here for our audience? Yeah, just the main thing is that we've been told that, that cognitive decline is hopeless. Please ignore that. It, there's a tremendous amount of hope. We really can, all of us working together, reduce the global burden of dementia. Awesome. Well, I appreciate everything that you're doing, all the great work that you're putting out and uh, the program that you set up in the books. So guys, again, go out, support Dr. Bredesen, get his book and pass it on to others. And we'll see you guys in a future video. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. 
And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.